If you don't have a copy of the scriptures uh, this morning, we'd love to gift one to you. So just let somebody know, and we'll make sure that you're able to leave today with a copy. But if you need one right now, you can go ahead and put your hand up, and Nick will bring a copy of the scriptures to you. But I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter one. The message of the title, the, the message of the sermon today is hope and holiness. Um, and my desire in preaching this morning is that you know that there's nothing special about Josh Dean at all. Um, yesterday was my son Samuel's birthday, and we celebrated Sam. And at one point, we sang a song to him, Happy Birthday. And he sat there, and he opened gifts, and people watched that. And that's my desire this morning, is that I might just be able to just unwrap a gift that's not necessarily for me, it's for all of us. And so... I don't want this to be a passive thing and that you're not really participating. I want you to be actively engaged and understand that my, my desire is to unwrap God's gift to us this morning so that you might receive it with joy and thanksgiving and so that it might change the way you think and conform you into Christ's image. One thing as I was reading and preparing this week for this message, reading the context in the first chapter of First Peter, I was really struck by how similar some of Peter's writings is like exalting in the goodness of God and what he's accomplished. And I was reminded of Ephesians 1, and that's why that was the supplementary passage this morning, because that's the passage that God used, I believe, to convert me. I was 20 years old. I had grown up in the church, but I'm not sure I understood the gospel. And it wasn't until I went to a Bible study where we went through verse by verse the book of Ephesians, and in that first section, there's all these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And there's that phrase, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, or in Him. That phrase pops up over and over in the first chapter of Ephesians, where it clicked with me. Holy smokes, all of this is about Jesus and what He's accomplished. It's very similar as David has opened up First Peter, it's very similar to what's going on in the first chapter of First Peter. There's all these wondrous things that God has accomplished on our behalf. He has worked for us and accomplished stuff, and he's preparing stuff, and he's, he's, he has things that are ready for us, and it's going to be revealed. And all those things are wrapped up in the person and the finished work of Jesus. So it struck me how similar those are, and so I wanted to make note of that to you guys. David said a few weeks ago that we're going to be going through First Peter, and he, he said, as we go through, look out for five themes in the book of First Peter. They're the work of God, the pursuit of holiness, living as the church in a fallen world, suffering as saints, and the sovereignty of God. We've looked over the past few weeks at some of the work that God has accomplished. That's what I'm referencing, the similarness uh, to Ephesians 1. And today we're going to be looking at the pursuit of holiness. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So in those four verses, we have a command in verse 12. Set your hope. 
We have a prohibition. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Then we have another command. You also be holy. And then we have an Old Testament reference, since it is written. The life truth I want to draw out at the beginning of this message, the one that's the overarching theme of today. God calls people out of the ignorant darkness of sin to a living hope and an active holiness. God calls people out of the ignorant darkness of sin to a living hope and an active holiness. That first word, therefore, uh, my dad taught me that when you read the word therefore, you ask, what is it there for? And that's the context. You have to look at context when you look at scripture. And the therefore comes after all, everything I just mentioned. That first chapter is referencing the work of God. So seen in the first 12 verses, there's that phrase, he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance kept in heaven, being guarded, ready to be revealed. And then in in verses 10 and 12, he references redemptive history. All the work that God has done throughout, since creation to today, the work of revealing his character and his plan of redemption, revealing his son, hinting hinting at him in the Old Testament, and then in, in John, the word became flesh, God sent his son. And we know in the gospel, that was lived out in Christ's work. He accomplished an obedient holiness that nobody who had ever lived had managed to do. And then he laid himself down, a sacrifice for sin. God revealed him to be the son of God by raising him from the dead. And he's ascended to the father, promising to return one day. That's the gospel. And that's what we're heirs of. And that's the work that's being referenced in verses 10 through 12. There's also the work that God has done in us. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of what God has done for us, we can hope in what God has promised he will do for us. So because of what God has done in the past, he's accomplished all that stuff. He's revealed the gospel. He sent the promised Messiah. The promised Messiah obeyed the the law. The promised Messiah received the suffering due for sin. He raised to the Father. Because God has done all this, we can hope in all the promises that have yet to be fulfilled. So when Christ said, it's good that I go, I will send a helper, but I'm coming again we look to that the same way the Old Testament saints looked to a Jesus who had come initially. So because of what God has done, we can hope in what God has promised He will do for us. And so that command in verse 13, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is a reference to future grace. When Jesus returns... It says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But for those who are not in Christ, that day will be a day and a moment of absolute terror. When the sky rolls back and the Son of Man returns 
similar to how he left. For those who are not in Christ, there will be this instant, overwhelming terror. Their hearts will drop. They will fall on their faces and they'll declare who God is because they will see who he is. But it won't, it won't be love. It'll be terror because wrath comes to those who are children of disobedience, those who are at enmity with God. But for those who are in Christ, that moment will be one of joy because in that moment, God will give grace to his children. Grace to fall down in worship, not instead of falling down in terror. And that's a promise for the children of God. That when he returns, he will come to gather us up. We'll meet him in the air. We will be made like him. And we will no longer be burdened by this flesh. Flesh that wars with the spirit. Flesh that's subject to decay and sickness. Flesh that's subject to death. We'll be raised with him in likeness to him. And we will have bodies that are like his. And we will live forever with him in glory. But for those who are not in Christ, it will be judgment and the second death. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. On the sure promises of God, we fix our hope. So we need to avoid getting swept up in controversy, in our own temptations, in drunkenness, in worldliness, in fleshly desires. That's what he's saying when he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is also what Peter means when he tells us to prepare for action and be sober-minded. Instead of being intoxicated, maybe physically by chemicals, or our hearts being intoxicated by fleshly desires, God calls his children to be patiently attentive, like the servants awaiting their master's sudden return in Matthew 24. I'll read that for you. Jesus says, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, in this intermediary period, where Jesus has come but gone back to the Father, and we find ourselves waiting for his return, we do so in a world that's completely and utterly marred by sin. We see that in our own hearts. We see that in the chaos of this world. We see that in the decay of things around us. And so... We fortify our hearts and minds for the evils of this world by looking for the grace to come. If we are focused on the here and the trappings of this world, we forget what's to come. And I've referenced this before, but that saying you're so heavenly minded, you're you're no earthly good, that is not a biblical perspective at all. It's the exact opposite we should be so utterly heavenly-minded that we're actually able to be of earthly good. 
It's the opposite of that stupid cliche. So we fortify our hearts and minds for the the evils of this world by looking for the grace that's to come. This has been floating around social media this week, and I looked into it and read and read the actual study. It's pretty amazing. But there was this guy in the 1950s. He was a psychologist named Kurt Richter, and he had observed in like science journals the phenomenon of like tribal peoples, like shamans or witch doctors, putting curses on people, and within 24 hours, those people dying. Of nothing, no, no physical causes. And he's like, what's going on? So as a, as a scientist, he didn't believe in voodoo and woo stuff. So he's like, there needs to be a logical explanation for this. So he took rats. He did this study where he took tame rats and he put them in water to observe how long they would tread water before they died. And yeah, so they don't do animal studies like this anymore, Kim, so it's okay. Um, but there was a range. The first three rats lived a few minutes before they drowned. But, but a certain group of them tread water for hours and hours before succumbing. So then he was like, okay, that's interesting. And he, 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 there was a bunch of different things he was doing in that study. And he, he did another test where he took 34 wild rats who were known for their vigor and for their ability to swim. And he put them in water. All of them died within 15 minutes. That's kind of weird. So he, he began to isolate some of the differences, and he began to do different things to test this, and he was able to create reproducible results by taking rats, putting them in water, observing them until they were about to drown, taking them out, handling them, putting them back in the water, trying to let them tread water, They were beginning to get exhausted. He'd take them out. He'd dry them off. He'd put them back in the water. And by training the rats to know, these wild rats, oh, I can be in this unfamiliar situation, but there's rescue that comes. He was able to train wild rats, who all of whom died within 15 minutes, to tread water for 60 hours, where instead of dying from hopelessness, they actually died from exhaustion. The difference between the wild rats... And the tame rats he was able to isolate was the tame rats were used to being handled. They were used to being put into weird situations. They were lab rats. Whereas the wild rats had no context whatsoever for treading water in a glass cylinder. And so within a few minutes, they would just give up. I've, I don't know the situation. This doesn't make sense to me. And they would die. They would give up. He's, he wrote in his findings, the difference between the rats was hope. When they had, were placed in a situation of which they had no familiarity and no concept of rescue, they just gave up and they died. But the rats that were trained to know, oh, I can be put in this weird situation and I'll be taken out, tread water for 60 hours, two and a half days. I share that to say there's something significant about hope. God says in his word, faith, these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. Hope is a significant role in the lives of believers. Because we need to fix our eyes on Christ, all that He's accomplished, all that He's promised He will do for us, and know we're not in a glass cylinder of which there's no escape. We have a God who has done things in the past 
in the Bible, we read about them. He has done things in our own lives. He, ha- he is doing things in the midst of our church. Oh, we have a God who makes good on his promises, who doesn't just leave us in glass cylinders to tread water till we die. We have a God who takes us out of those things and who's promised one day to take us out of that and to put us in a place where all things are made new, where sin and death are no more. So we need to be a people of hope. And just as an aside, this one's free. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. I believe the reason the greatest of these is love is because faith is believing without seeing and hope is longing for the thing that's yet to come and love is the expression of the character of God. And one day, faith won't be a thing anymore because we will see. We won't believe in what we don't see. We will actually see. And we won't hope because we will have But love will exist for all of eternity, whereas faith and hope will one day be things of the past. That that one's free. I'm not going to charge you guys for that one. Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. And so God calls us, his children, his image bearers, to be holy. God calls us to be holy. That's the very work he's doing in sanctification, making us like him. We should honor our God by imitating him. He calls us out of that ignorant darkness to Holiness. He doesn't call us out of darkness to, hey, here's a maze, figure it out. He calls us to something, a direction, Christ-likeness. That's what, that's what Jesus was referencing when he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5.20. So God calls us to be holy. And Jesus' finished work makes us holy. So I can't preach without mentioning these three things. Justification is the process by which God transfers somebody in the darkness into the light. And that's an instant thing that happens the moment you believe. When you put your faith on Jesus and you trust in him and what he accomplished on the cross, God brings you out of that darkness, out of being a foreigner and into being a member of his family. He adopts you in and he justifies you. What he does in that moment is he transfers all of Christ's righteousness that he gained through his obedience and he credits it, uh, us to on our on our behalf through faith. It's a it's an all or nothing thing. Either you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation or you're trying to achieve it on your own. And if you trust in Jesus, you go from death to life and you are justified. You can never be more justified than you were when you were justified to begin with. Christ's finished work makes us completely holy before God. So that when we stand before him in judgment, he will say not guilty. Not because of how awesome we are, but because Christ said it is finished. That's what we celebrate when we declare the goodness of God 
and the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That Jesus did it. It is finished. That's justification. Jesus' finished work makes us holy. And the Spirit, while we're living, still in this flesh, still with each one of us, has sins that easily entangles us, things that we keep tripping over. The Spirit works in us to make us holy. The Spirit works in us to make us holy. That process is called sanctification. It's the process process by which a child of God becomes more and more like Jesus throughout their life. We grow in faith. We grow in obedience. He helps us take off the old and put on the new. He changes our minds. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. That process is sanctification. The Spirit works in us to make us holy. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Sanctification happens from the moment you believe to the day you die or the moment that Christ returns. You are being made like Him. And one of the primary mechanisms that we are made like Christ is through suffering and through changing our perspective by His Word. So, we live out our faith by repenting of how we once thought and living differently than the world. We, we live out our faith by repenting of how we once thought and living differently than the world. It's really interesting to me that in verse 16 where he says, For, for it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a reference, uh, Leviticus 11, like 40 through 44, which is dietary laws. It's the restrictions against eating swarming bugs and lizards and snakes, all of which are things that I do, by the way. Um, that's the passage that Peter references. This dietary restriction, you shall be holy for I am holy, this thing in the Old Testament. It was Peter, remember, who was praying, and God gave him a vision where, a, where a, a sheet came out, and it opened up, and there were all these different animals, and God said to him, get up, kill, and eat, which is a, it's a good verse for a hunter and a fisherman. And it happened three times, and Peter's like, what in the world was that about? And at that very moment, some people come to him and say, hey, there's somebody who needs you to come talk to him. So he's like, okay. And he goes and talks to him. And that person was a Gentile. And he shares the gospel. And that dude's whole family and household gets saved. And then Peter's like, oh, that's what that was about. It used to be that God's people were set apart, made holy, by looking differently than the world, by not doing... like So the Israelites were called out of Egypt, and then God said, okay, now that you're mine... 
You can't do any of the things that Egypt used to do. You can't do any of the things that the people in these, in these surrounding areas do. You have to look different because you're my people. So you're not going to get tattoos and you're not going to eat bugs and you're not going to do these things. You're a different people. You have to be special. Now, in the new covenant, we understand it's not about what you eat. Jesus said it's not what comes, goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. Looking different isn't about not having tattoos. Looking different is about having lives that exult in the person and work of Jesus. That His grace is on our lips. That's what Jesus was talking about. When you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have to be like Jesus. That's the difference. It's not about hairstyles and clothing and tattoos. It's about living as somebody who knows that this is not our home We're just passing through. We have a much greater inheritance. Our hope is that one day this person we can't even see is going to come out of the sky and bring us up with him. That sounds crazy. And that's why preaching is a foolish thing. Because it is crazy. But it's the gospel. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're fools. And this is like a weird, nonsensical activity we're doing here this morning. We'd all be better off at, at churches and having some chicken and just celebrating our moms. And there's nothing wrong with going to churches and having chicken, celebrating your moms. But this is nonsense unless Jesus rose from the dead. But that is our hope. That's what our hearts long for, to see the Son of Man return. He's promised he'll do it. And yeah, remember Malachi to Matthew, 400 years of silence. And so imagine being Zechariah and getting word that before you die, the Messiah will come. It's like, holy smokes, there's something to all these things that I can't see that I'm believing. And it's the exact same way with us. Nobody here has seen Jesus. But we look to him and he does things in our midst. There's a fellow named Rusty who's been coming to church. Of every seat he could have sat in a few weeks ago, he sat in the dean's row. And it's not our row, but it's where we always sit. And Rusty has an autistic son. And you know who else has an autistic son? The deans. And we connected over that. And then David invited him to our small group. And you know what? Rusty lives right off of Red Hollow Road. That's where we live. And when he was getting in his car to come to GC on that Friday, he said to his wife, how crazy would it be if it was that house we always pass and talk about? And it was our house. And we talked and he said, hey, after GC, we said, hey, we're going to have a crawfish bowl on May 8th. You should come. He's like, yeah, I'll come to that. That'd be fun. And then 10 minutes later, he was like, wait a second. No, I don't know if I can come. May 8th is my son, my autistic son's birthday. I said, May 8th is Sam's birthday, artistic son. He actually walked outside after and was like, and I asked David, is he telling the truth? <laughs> or is he just like, is he like, all these coincidences, he's, he's adding that one to, to mess with me. No, God does things in our midst. And then we were like, oh, God does things. And so that's why we look like, you remember the Old Testament practice of when God did something really cool, they'd build an altar? That was so that their children would say, why is this here? And then they would say, oh, glad you asked. Let me tell you about this crazy thing God did 25 years ago. We need to do the same thing. In our own hearts, in our families, in our church, we're like, this is a cool thing God's doing in our midst. 
so that we know and we're like rats who need to be pulled out of the water and remember, oh, God does these things. He's promised he's going to do the ultimate thing. Let's put our hope, not a little bit, set your hope fully on the grace that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we, we delight in things that he does now. If, if he brings healing, we, we praise his name. But those are shadows of the ultimate healing that's coming when he returns and all of the old things pass away. When we pray for somebody to be healed, the answer is yes. It might not be for this life, but it will be for the next. And that's where our hope is. I have no idea where I'm supposed to be in my notes right now. We live out our faith by repenting of how we once thought and by living differently than the world. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but we live differently now. We take off the old and we put on the the new. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Philippians 1.6, right Jennifer? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May it all be said of us that we are sure that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. And so, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, my call to you, Agape, is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be obedient children thereby not conforming yourselves to the passions of how you once lived before Christ. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct because God said, be holy for I am holy. And that's not about food. It's about Trusting in a Jesus you can't see, who's come and done a work that passes you from death to life, and he has promised that he's coming again. The hope of the church is the return of Christ. The hope of the church is the return of Christ. And so, worship team, you guys can come up. My invitation to y'all is to respond to this message 
respond. So you may be currently idle, not really prepared for action at all. You're kind of letting life and ministry happen around you, but you're not engaged. You may be intoxicated with the things of this world. It may be that you have an addiction. It may be that you just really, really get worked up about politics. It may be that you just really, really have lusts that aren't in check, that that you haven't given to God, and they're kind of dominating your life. It may be that you're hoping in the wrong things. Your sole focus, the thing that you ask for prayer about more than any other, may be a promotion at work, and that's all that you can think about. Forgetting that you have a very, very rich father who can give you whatever you need. You may be focused on everything that's gone wrong in your life, not on all that God has done for you. You may be doubting the promises of God. Will he really do that that he's promised me? You might feel like God has just passed you by and he's forgotten you. You may still be living in ignorant passion. You might be relying on your own holiness instead of trusting in Jesus' completed work. You may be exceedingly weary. So my invitation to you this morning is to respond to the Lord, read his word, and say, Lord, do the work in me that you need to do to conform me into your image. Do not let me be conformed to the passions of this world, but let me set my hope fully on a God who's accomplished much on my behalf, who's promised more than I can imagine. Kevin and Rob, will you guys... Come up. Nick, are there prayer themes for this morning? I don't want to dictate to you how you respond to the Lord, but if any of those things are true of you, you need to respond to the Lord. He's calling you. So, if it's one of these things or something completely different. Don't let today go by without wrestling with God. So, Kevin and Rob, leaders of our church, are here to pray with you if you need prayer. If you are bogged down in the cares of this world, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you, and they will pray with you, and they will help you work through that. If you don't know Christ, and you don't know what it is to set your hope on Him, and you are relying on your own obedience... I'm going to be over here, and I will pray with you through the gospel. And I will pray until it clicks with you, or you say, I'm going to go home and and keep this up. If you don't want to pray with anybody, that's fine. But pray. If you can't feel anything, then I just take the bulletin and read the word. And say, God, what make this real to me. And read it and pray. Make this real to me. And keep doing that until he answers you. And for some reason you just can't respond now, go home. And this afternoon, go into a closet, close the door, get on your face before God, get on your hands and knees and say, God, where are you? Please show me who you are. And if he doesn't do that in prayer, then take out the Bible and a flashlight and read the book of John until he does. Because he will. But if you're not in Christ, today is the the day of salvation. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it doesn't matter where you are, though. My invitation is respond to what's been proclaimed. Set your hope on Christ. Come get prayed for here. 
come receive Jesus here, but spend some time worshiping Him, responding to His Word, and listening to the Spirit's call in your life.